You can be seated. And if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, halfway down the aisles and the banisters, at least over on that side I see, this side uh, didn't bring their Bibles today, so they snatched them up. But grab your Bible, whether it's borrowed or your own, and let's look at Luke 17. As you're turning there, let me ask you, what would it take for you to shout for joy? I mean literally shout, uncontrollably and publicly, and not when other people are shouting, not a football game, not a Lobo basketball game, with no thought of those around you and what they would think. What would it take to shout for joy? What would it take to fall down at someone's feet in thanks to them? What would they have to have done or given or fixed in your life that you would uncontrollably and with no thought of strangers around you fall down at their feet, face to the ground to give them thanks? Well, maybe you'd say, I can't imagine anything. Or maybe you know where this is going, that Luke 17 gives us a story of someone who did just that and tells us that we should do it too. Let's start in verse 11, the story of ten lepers who were healed. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going... They were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Well, that's God's word for us this morning. And I see seven themes that can be seen in this story. The first is disease. Back at the beginning, disease, verse 12. These guys have leprosy, ten leprous men. Now, let's spend some time talking about what leprosy is because... um, If you've grown up around the Bible, you probably just don't think about leprosy. You just think it's bad and it's old. It still exists today. It's Hansen's disease. If you've seen it, then you know a little bit about it. And if you read up on it, you know a little bit about it. But even the first century version of leprosy and the way they suffered was was different than maybe some suffer today. Simply put, a, a diagnosis of leprosy for them in the first century was the worst possible thing that anyone could have ever heard. It was much worse than any diagnosis you'd get from the doctor today. Much worse than cancer. Much worse than AIDS. It's bacteria that first appears as a light discoloration on the skin, probably a a pink or a white spot. Eventually it attacks the nerves and the skin and spreads. Eventually feeling is lost in the nerves So there's no sense of touch. So one of the most dangerous things about leprosy is the potential for injury to yourself. 
You might think, well, if I had it, I'd just be careful. How can it get so bad? You bang into so many things that, you know, as I've heard, limbs can fall off eventually. I mean, really? Yeah. I mean, think about the way when you touch something that's hot and your hand jerks back. If there was no sense of hotness, it'd stay there and it would keep burning. Imagine in these days, they'd sleep outside or in a place where rats came around, which means you wouldn't feel a rat nibbling on your finger in the middle of the night. They even say, those who study this, this disease, say that our muscles are actually stronger than we know, and it's often that pain limits our, our exercise of the muscle, so that Say, for instance, you're trying to turn something with all your might. You're trying to turn it hard. It's not just the muscle that's limited. The muscle is partly limited by the pain that's in the skin and the muscles and the bone. And if we didn't feel that, scientists say, doctors say, if we didn't feel that, we would lift beyond what our skin can take. We would push beyond what our skin could take. There's no feeling of touch, but yet there's a severe pain within the skin itself as these spots begin to become dirty, open, spreading sores. The disease attacks internal organs. It breaks down bones. Fingers and toes are absorbed into the body as well as eyes, so blindness was extremely common. Bathing is almost impossible for those who are leprous, because the skin is so fragile and the, store, the sores are so painful. So the stench was unthinkable. The stench of one leper would be bad, let alone the stench of multiple lepers living together. Leviticus 13 and 14 are two chapters that give us the laws, the Old Testament laws on leprosy and how to deal with leprosy. Basically, what they tell us is that the priest was to function as some kind of a health inspector. And so from Leviticus' time on through Jesus' time, if you had a skin disease, if you had a skin spot, you gulped, you went to see the priest, and if he said you had leprosy, you were immediately quarantined. Quarantined from family, from society, and even from temple worship, temple prayers. You couldn't be around anyone. No one could have contact with you because it was so contagious and it was so feared. Listen to Leviticus 13, the way it describes it here. Verse 45 says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. We'll come back to those last three words, outside the camp, later on. Just tuck them away. You get what this is saying? If the leper did get near anyone without the disease, if they did find themselves in public, they would have to shout, Unclean! unclean to warn everyone around them that they have this disease and people should keep their distance. They should flee. They couldn't work. 
they also couldn't really beg because they can't be around people. So the usual way of survival was this. The family would give food to those who were leprous, but not by coming to the leper colony and not by the leper coming back to the house and saying, hey, can you just give me some food real quick and I'll be on my way. But they would leave it someplace else. The family would come and bring food to a designated place, leave it there, walk away, and then later the leper would come and get the food. He'd never see him. Can you imagine this kind of suffering and being totally alone to deal with it? Totally alone except for those who also have it. Some of which are freaking out because they just got it. Some of which are in their last gruesome days of dealing with it. No hope of cure. The disease would spread and spread until eventually they would die. But there's one thing certain that it would be horrible and painful throughout the process. No surprise then that ancient documents call this disease the living dead. It's also important to know that leprosy was thought to be a divine curse as a result of some serious sin somewhere in your life. And there were some people in the Old Testament who were cursed of God with leprosy because of some serious sin. Hezekiah was one of those. But no, leprosy is not always a curse on a serious sin. Sometimes people just get it as part of living in a fallen, broken world like people get AIDS or cancer or a cold. But in these days, everyone around the leper would have thought that he did something so God-awful that he deserved this kind of divine punishment. So do you see something of how desperate these ten lepers would have been absolute outcasts, absolutely despised in their culture, feared in their culture. Well, these ten lepers here, one great day of Jesus of Nazareth, and then they hear one great day that Jesus of Nazareth is coming through, which leads to the second theme, pleading. In verse 13, they're pleading. No doubt they've heard of some of Jesus' previous healings. Jesus even healed a leper in Luke chapter 5. And right after that, Luke tells us, chapter 5, verse 15, the news about Jesus was spreading further and further, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. No doubt these lepers fall into that category. They've heard news of Jesus. They've heard news of his miracles. Maybe they've even heard news of this one leper that got healed. And they are eager they're eager to get healing, but they can't come near to Jesus. Notice it's from a distance. Notice they're at the, the edge of the town. They're not in the middle of the town. Jesus is entering a town, and they're at the edge. But from a distance, it says, verse 13, they raise their voices, loud pleading, public pleading. It's like blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. Remember that guy? The one that everyone said, shut up to? Because he was yelling, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. And he kept saying it over and over. No concern for what others think. So these ten cry aloud at the same time. Look at Jesus. Master, have mercy on us. Now I wonder what we'd think of all this if we were there. Put yourself there in this town. You hear that Jesus is coming. You're eager to hear him teach. 
Maybe you're eager for a healing yourself. Maybe you've got a nasty, gangrenous toe that you'd really like fixed. And then these lepers are there, and they're yelling, lepers. So, so is, is there a reaction in your heart of fear? Lepers, ten of them. I hope they stay there. Is there a reaction of aggravation? Quit yelling. We want them to hear. We want to hear them talk. Uh, is there skepticism, doubt? Come on, Jesus can heal, but he can't heal leprosy, and certainly not ten at once. Jesus shows compassion. All who humbly come to him find him willing and able and compassionate. Which leads to the third theme, healing. Healing, in verse 14, unlike the other miracles we see, Jesus doesn't even touch them. He doesn't touch them not because he's afraid to get leprosy. In Luke chapter 5, the other leper healing, the man there touched Jesus. Jesus didn't say, how dare you, now I'm going to get it. But Jesus doesn't touch these ten, yet heals them as a demonstration of his power. It's already power demonstrated enough that he heals them. He doesn't even say, be healed, like he does other times. He doesn't put his hand out, maybe like he has other times. He just wondrously and powerfully heals, not one, but ten. And from this most horrible and most hopeless of diseases. Jesus only tells them, verse 14, go Show yourselves to the priest. Why? Well, because the priests, like I said, were something of the local health inspectors. And Leviticus 13 and 14 told them that they are to decide who has leprosy and then send them off. And they're also to inspect those who had leprosy and think they don't have it anymore. If they think they don't have it anymore, they need to be certified by a priest that they don't have it anymore before they can return to society. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus tells a leper that he healed there to go tell the priest. And there he tells why he wants, them, wants him to go tell the priest. Two reasons. One, Moses commanded it. Which is interesting. There is showing Jesus uh, kind of following the law, embracing the law, doing what Moses commanded, what's right there in Leviticus 13 and 14. But the second reason is, Tell the priests as a testimony to the priest. Go and show yourselves to the priest as a testimony to the priest, a testimony to who Jesus is. Remember back in Luke 7 where John the Baptist was having doubts about Jesus and whether he was really the one that they'd been waiting for, the Messiah. So he sent his disciples and they asked Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? And Jesus says in his answer, tell John what's going on. The lepers are being healed. Proof that he's Messiah. Proof that should be acknowledged by priests. But notice this too. Notice that by faith, these ten lepers have to start heading to the priest before they're actually healed. They have to demonstrate faith. They have to demonstrate their obedience. They're not healed and then they go. Jesus sends them. And then they're healed on the way. It's kind of like Naaman in 2 Kings 5. He was another guy who was healed of leprosy. 
And the prophet there told him that he needed to go in the river and dunk himself seven times. Well, like that, remarkably, all ten of these lepers believe this much. They are all willing to leave for the priest. I mean, based on what we've seen so far in Luke, you'd expect the story to kind of finish like this. He tells ten to go to the priest and show themselves to him. But four of them, or five of them, or six of them, however many, say, oh, come on. Is this a cruel joke? Show ourselves to the priest. You want us to start walking? Can't you heal us now and then we'll walk clean and able and painless? But all ten actually believe. Believe that much. And apparently on their way to the priest, all ten are instantly healed. This leads to praise, the fourth theme. Praise, at least for one, one returns. Just one. It says in verse 16 that he was falling down on his face at Jesus' feet. Now that's worship. That's bowing. And it's important to see what that means. It's, it's significant. Because Jesus accepts this worship. Jesus doesn't say, get up, like other servants of God do elsewhere in the Bible when people bow to him. So someone bows to Peter in Acts chapter 10, and Peter says, what are you doing, dude? Get up, get up, I'm just a guy, I'm not God, you don't bow to me, even if you think I'm a good preacher or a miracle worker. And then Revelation 19, John bows to an angel, and the angel says, what are you doing? Get, get up, I, I've got crazy wings and eyes all over, but I'm not him, I'm not God. You don't bow. But Jesus doesn't refuse people bowing to him. John does it in Revelation 1, and Jesus doesn't say, get up. All this means that Jesus is God. All this means, too, that the one who returned, the Samaritan who was healed, knows that he's God. So how did this great praise, this loud praise, spring up in his heart? It came from an acute awareness of his desperate need. But also an assumption that any healing that Jesus would give would be undeserved. It wasn't earned. It's not something that Jesus had to do. Jesus could heal, but he didn't have to. He's tapping into Jesus' grace and mercy. He's not tapping into what Jesus is bound to do. And there's also then springing up in praise, the realization of the glory and the power and the wonder of this healing. He gets it all. That's the point. He gets what happened. He gets what changed and the difference that Jesus made. His praise and thanks to God, in other words, aren't out of duty. This isn't a guy who just had a mom that taught him manners. And mom always said, make sure you say thanks. And so it's just instinctive for him. Jesus, help me. I appreciate that. I'll go say thanks. No. It looks impulsive, doesn't it? It looks irrepressible. You can't keep it in. You see that in verse 15, when this one seems to turn back for Jesus immediately once he sees that he's healed. In other words, he turns back before he gets to the priest's. Now, maybe he went to the priests afterward. We don't know. Let's presume that he did, but it doesn't really matter. Luke doesn't tell us, because that's not the main point. 
The main point is that as soon as he was healed, he left the plan of going to the priest, right then anyway, and turned back to Jesus. It's impulsive. It's irrepressible to praise and thank Jesus. He didn't need the priest to tell him what he already knew. He knew he was cleansed. He thought that thanking Jesus was more important than being certified to be clean by a priest. So I think there's something interesting here in God's plan going on. This is sort of like a hinge. Where on the one hand, you see Jesus confirming Moses, confirming Leviticus 13 and 14, and telling the guy, go back to the priests. On the other hand, the guy doesn't do it and comes back to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't freak out and say, what are you doing here? I said, go back to the priest. Go, go show him. Get the certificate that you're clean, and then you can thank me. No. Jesus says that this is real faith. Jesus says that this guy did what was right. Interesting. Sort of subtle subversion of that old covenant priesthood. Jesus is the one that certifies whether we're clean. So he's the one that we run back to to thank. By the way, shouldn't we think about this? Isn't it so easy to to fake thankfulness? To fake praise, to see here that it should be loud, and so we make it loud. To see here that it should be bowing, and so you, you say to yourself, yeah, you're right. You know, I haven't in my prayer closet, alone with God, actually gotten on my knees in a while. I'm going to start doing that more. Not a bad thing to do. Sometimes actions do lead our emotions in. But this guy's response, just note it, isn't duty. It's not motivated out of guilt. And it's not half-hearted. His praise, his thankfulness is impulsive and irrepressible because it's rooted in a true experience of feeling utterly desperate and an experience of knowing grace and healing, salvation and freeness. That's praise. Let's talk about the opposite, the fifth thing. Thanklessness. The fifth theme is thanklessness. These other nine, they don't return in thanks. Now, on the one hand, it's remarkable that Jesus healed nine lepers. We saw what leprosy was like, right? We talked about that for a few minutes. And then they're free of their leprosy. It's remarkable that they don't return in thanks. It's breathtaking that they don't give due praise to God who's done the miraculous in their life. On the other hand, that seems about right to me. Doesn't it? Based on what we see around us, doesn't that seem about right? Or closer to home, doesn't that seem about right with you? Can't you imagine not returning in thanks? No? Well, how's your thankfulness going then? Use these as tests. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will for you, you don't need to go looking for it. It's not missing. Thank him. Thank him constantly. Thank him for everything. Why? Well, because of James 1.17, in part, that every good thing is given from God. Every perfect gift is from above. 
It comes down from the Father of lights. Everything's from him. Psalm 103, verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. I tell you what, my forgetfulness is sketchy. And I'm sorry, my thankfulness is sketchy. And my thankfulness oftentimes is weak. My thankfulness sometimes is faked. It's out of duty. Now, let's spend some time talking about why these nine didn't return in praise and thanks to Jesus. We don't really have the answer. It doesn't say so here in God's word, but let me give some guesses. Yeah, they're guesses, but they're educated guesses based on what we see in Luke especially about unbelief. So I think it'll help us think through their thanklessness, the other's thankfulness, the one, and then the difference between the two. So why did the nine return, not return in thanks? Let me give you six options, six possibilities. One, maybe they didn't return because of fear of identifying with Jesus. Jesus at this point is basically a marked man. He said those who follow after him should take up their cross because they'll probably follow me all the way to the cross, maybe even be crucified themselves. Maybe they didn't turn back They were glad to have their healing, but they didn't want to keep going with this Jesus thing. Or two, maybe it was simple self-centeredness. They're interested in Jesus' benefits, but not Jesus himself. They're interested in what Jesus can do for them, but that's as far as the relationship went. They believed that he could heal, but that's as far as the faith went. Three, maybe it was... That their love for family superseded their love for Jesus. And understandably, if they've been apart from family for years, they haven't seen kids grow up. Well, getting that certificate from the priest is pretty important so that you can run home, kiss kids, and hug wife, and see them and tell them the great news that you're healed in your home. You can't blame them if that's part of the reason. Except that Jesus has been saying here in Luke, hasn't he? If you follow after me, you must love me more than family. Family is good, but Jesus is God. And there has to be a difference. Or four, maybe it was confused religion, we could call it. What I mean is this. Maybe after going to the priests at the temple, they stayed at the temple because that's where they thought they needed to give thanks Because that's where they thought God was. Remember the one who came back. What did he do? He bowed. In bowing, he indicated that he believed Jesus was God. That's where he went to give thanks. But if the other nine don't think that Jesus is God, but merely God's messenger, why would you run back to Jesus and give thanks? Maybe they stayed at the temple and and they offered their sacrifices. There were follow-up sacrifices after they were cleansed. It had to be done, so maybe they made the sacrifices and gave thanks to God at the temple because they think that's where he is. A big difference between that and the one who returns and bows. Or five, maybe these nine didn't thank God at all. Maybe they were simply thinking that now healed the world. Their world has been righted. It's been fixed. Something was wrong, and now it's right And so, thank Jesus, I guess I could, but it was wrong. He did the right thing. He fixed what was wrong. 
If anything, maybe he owes me an apology for how long I suffered or commendation for how well I suffered for so long. Well, if that's like stuff being stolen from your house and then eventually returned to you, and you wouldn't think of thanking the thief who gave it back after he was caught? Yeah, but that's not God's plan. That's not the story that Jesus is working in. We don't believe that Jesus here healing is just them finally being righted. And six, maybe it's that they just delayed. Maybe the nine didn't return in thanks because they intended to, but they just put it off. Remember, the one who did return in thanks and praise did so before he even got to the priest. It was immediate. So maybe they thought, okay, that's a good idea. You left us. You're going back to Jesus. We're going to do that too. But we're just going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to go get that certificate of cleanness. Go make our sacrifices in the temple there that were officially clean. And then we'll go back and think, Jesus, uh, wait, let's go tell family first. And we'll just tell them real quick. We'll have a meal. We'll just have a meal. But we'll just sleep there that night and, and eventually we'll find Jesus. And like many things we intend to do but put off, maybe it just never happened. If that's the case, then that means delaying was the deadly enemy of their faith. Now, I put six points in the middle of a seven-point outline. Because I think this is important. This is the key here. This is the difference between the nine and the one, between the unbelieving and the saved, between just a physical healing and spiritual healing. So do any of these resemble you? Do you want enough of Jesus, but not so much that you're in trouble with the world? Do you fear being identified with Jesus too much? Are you interested in Jesus' benefits but not really interested in Jesus? If it came down to family or Jesus, would you, would you say it's a no-brainer, it's family? Do you think that Jesus is just part of your religion and there are other things that you've added in that aren't in his plan now? Do you think that whatever he's done that's good is just him fixing what's been wrong? And so it's, it's not something that responds with grace-filled praise of the undeserved. It's something that feels righted. Or are you delaying faith? Are you thinking that eventually you'll get around to it? Eventually you will believe. Maybe you think consciously, logically in your head, Jesus is the Lord. He is the Savior I've heard the gospel, but I'm not ready. Friend, don't delay. Many people thought they would have more time to believe, and they've been mistaken. Well, that's thanklessness. The sixth theme here is ethnicity. You may not have seen it, but ethnicity is no small part of Luke's telling of the story, even though it's just two words, but two important words. And they are signals for us. Look at the end of verse 16. This is just a sentence. And he was a Samaritan. It's just like a floating sentence. doesn't seem to fit. Unless Luke is stressing something here. Something that Jesus is also stressing here. Verse 18. He asked, no one returned except this foreigner? 
foreigner was synonymous to Jews with pagan, was synonymous with heathen. It, it meant that they were ethnic outsiders and that they were religious outsiders. The Samaritan, Jesus says, is one of these. Now remember who the Samaritans were? We've seen this in Luke before. Let me remind you, they're half Jewish and half Gentile. They are the, the product of Jews in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity intermarrying with Gentiles there and, and producing what eventually became a, a race, a people group. So the Jews didn't just hate these Samaritans because they weren't fully Jewish. They hated them in some ways understandably, if I can say that today in our omni-sensitive uh, culture. Somewhat understandably that they don't like them because these Samaritans represented the rebellion and spiritual corruption of God's people at a time when God was judging his people and saying, while you're there in Babylon, don't pick up the idols. While you're there in Babylon, don't intermarry with the others. You stay pure. It's a low point in God's plan. And so the Jews don't like the Samaritans, even if it's not right, even if that's wrong. It's a fact. Remember, a good Jew would walk around Samaria instead of going through it, even though it took longer. Or if he went through it, he would shake off the dust, the Samaritan dust from his sandals before he would enter Jewish land again. In Luke, this issue of ethnicity keeps getting emphasized over and over. If you want to go back and listen to messages on that Jew-Gentile thing going on in Luke, it's in Luke 3, it's in Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, and in Luke 14, we stressed Ethnicity is something that Jesus and Luke, who's writing this, is trying to show to us. Now, the story in Luke 17 doesn't say that these other nine were Jews, but they almost certainly were. Anytime Luke doesn't say what they are, they're Jews. If he wanted us to know that there's something else, he would call them something else, like he did these, some, uh, this one Samaritan, this one foreigner. So it's an important contrast one Samaritan believed and worshipped, but nine Jews didn't give God glory. What it's speaking to, like all the ethnic issues in Luke have been speaking to, is that God's kingdom is now for Jew and Gentile alike. It's telling us that relationship with Jesus is not predicated on race or heritage or ethnicity telling us that Jesus is now, in God's divine wisdom, reaching down to the lowliest. It doesn't get more lowly for a first century Jew than to speak of a Samaritan leper. I mean, how bad could it get? A Samaritan leper, what could be worse? And this guy, this Samaritan leper, is not only healed, that would blow the mind of a lot of the Pharisees, but he's the one at the end of the story who's right with Jesus. Which leads to this last point here. And then we'll have some application points to follow. The last point is salvation. Salvation, verse 19, it literally should read, your faith has made you saved, not clean, not well. That's an interpretive translation based on what has already happened. There's been a cleansing, there's been a healing. But Jesus is saying that there's a different kind of 
cleansing or healing going on at the end of this story. This man is saved. The other nine were healed, but this man is spiritually healed. So the faith that Jesus commends there in verse 19 isn't the faith that was at first crying out for the, the healing in verse 13 with all of the ten, but instead it's true belief of that one which maybe happened once he saw his cleansing, once he realized who this Jesus really was. There was, there was enough faith to believe and be healed for all ten, but only one was totally transformed. And he returned in thanks and praise. So let's make sure we get how and why this guy is saved. That's what Jesus says. He's saved and the others weren't. Well, this guy is saved not because of the intensity of his thanks or the intensity of his praise. You know, you bowed down. You were so humble. Here you go. Here's salvation. Here's a ticket into heaven. And it's not also because of the intensity or the amount of his faith. We talked about that last week. No, neither faith nor praise nor acts of thanksgiving can ever earn God's favor. This man simply understood his desperate need and then understood that Christ was the answer. In Acts, we hear this formula over and over. Repentance and faith. That's how we get in. That's how we receive God's grace. Repentance and faith. Repentance is seeing our need. Feeling our desperate need. Faith is seeing that Christ is our hope, our saving, cleansing hope. So true faith. Remember those six things? True faith isn't afraid to identify with Jesus no matter what the human threat. Doesn't see Jesus as a means of certain benefits for here and now. Doesn't see family or any other good thing in this life as more important than Jesus. Sees Jesus as the true temple, as the great high priest who alone can declare us cleansed. True faith knows that any healing. Any saving is completely of his grace. It's not deserved. It's not earned. And true faith doesn't delay in responding in faith and thanksgiving and praise because it sees Christ for who he is, the sovereign Lord, the preeminent one, God in the flesh. Now this guy's healing is also a window into conversion. It's not just that he was healed physically, then saved spiritually. The healing itself is a picture, a metaphor for how one gets right with God through Jesus. Think of leprosy as a symbol for sin. Not every case of leprosy was because of sin. We already said that. But sometimes in Scripture, leprosy is referred to as kind of a a metaphor for the sin problem. God does this in Isaiah 1. In verse 5, God says, The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. No bandages, no oil to soften it. So how is sin like leprosy? Sin spreads. Sin's problems spread. Sin is corrosive. Sin is cankerous. Sin is 
numbing, desensitizing, deadening. Sin sometimes puts us outside the camp of fellowship with people, right? How how many times have you blown it with someone? Maybe at first you're mad enough to not take responsibility for it. Later on you realize, that was me. I blew up that relationship with, with that gossip, with that lie, with that hurtful word. Sin separates. And it separates us from fellowship with God, just like those lepers who couldn't go to the temple in worship to pray because of their leprosy. And sin makes us helpless. There's no human cure for sin. Nothing we can do to fix it. Nothing anyone else can do to fix it. So like this Samaritan leper, we need to see our sin as hopeless. We need to see ourselves as desperate. We need to see our sin as disgusting and deadly and destructive. And we need to see Christ as the only hope for our salvation. If you say, I don't think it's right to say sin is like leprosy. Isn't it just going a little too far? Well, two thoughts. One, take up your complaint with God. He came up with the analogy. It's right there in Isaiah 1. But secondly, isn't it possible that it's all around us so we don't know the difference? Wasn't it Pascal, one of the philosophers, said, a fish, when he's in water, doesn't know what water is. It's everything. Water to a fish, what do you mean? It's everything. You have to be outside the water to know something of water. What if... What if the leprosy of our souls was deceptive? It also blinds us. And we don't realize that we're basically living in a leper colony. And we're just so used to it, we don't realize that sin is as ugly as it is. Destructive as it is. Deadly as it is. But isn't it wonderful that Isaiah 1, remember where Israel's sin is pictured as leprosy, goes on to say, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet red, they'll be washed white as snow. Listen to what B.B. Warfield, an old Princeton theologian, said. He said, we are sinners and we know ourselves to be sinners, lost and helpless in ourselves, but we are saved sinners and it's our salvation which gives the tone to our life, a tone of joy which swells, listen to this, in exact proportion to the sense we have of our ill desert. Ill desert's old English, we don't say that anymore. It means our trouble, our joy grows in proportion to our sense of trouble, to our sense of of desperation, to our sense of what we deserve. Which means that the greatest need for us is not a physical healing. The greatest need for you is not the removal of physical pain. The greatest need for you is not more ease or comfort. Not the greatest need. God may have purposes to give you any of those things. Our greatest need, make it clear, is to apprehend Jesus and be saved from the leprosy of our inmost being. 
Now, now hold on, there's just a couple more things to, to point out to you. Things of connections in the Bible, like this. Like the lepers were far off, and they were brought in, we too, Christians, we were far off, but he has cleansed us and brought us near. So, Ephesians 2, verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Four verses later, Paul says, Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far away. Came and he preached peace. Remember also that that concept in Leviticus 13, those three words at the end that I said take note of, outside the camp? Well, listen to Hebrews 13, where it says that Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. It's talking about the same kind of thing. Outside the people's place. Outside the place of his presence and his fellowship. He went outside for us. He went to take our pain. He went to die our death. He went to be alone Deserted for us. Now, a few closing questions for introspection, and these will be quick. First, what kind of faith in Jesus do you have? Is it no faith at all? Or is it temporary faith, like those dying? Is it just enough to get something from Jesus, but not enough that it results in Weird thankfulness. Uncontrollable thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that wells up from our inmost being. Would you believe today? Why delay? Believe that he is. This one we read about is real. He lives today. This isn't a story. This isn't a parable. This really happened. I pray you'd believe that. I pray you'd receive him. The second question is for Christians. Are you growing in your thankfulness and praise? Growing in it. You know, the one who showed up to Jesus and bowed and prayed, uh, thanked him in loud praise, that was just the beginning of his story with Jesus, wasn't it? I mean, it didn't end there. Jesus didn't say, all right, you can go now. Stop thanking me. You're done. In heaven, we'll thank him forever and ever. But there are no shortcuts for us. This thing of living out thankfulness and living out praise to him should be something we're growing in, not leveling off in. How many Christians, I know I've had these seasons in my life, I'm not growing in thankfulness. I'm used to what he, do, what he does for me. I'm used to it. It's a given that I'm saved, right? It's a given that he'll provide even if it's a little, even if it's light. And so thanks doesn't happen quite as desperately and quite as joyfully and quite as exuberantly. There are no shortcuts. This can't be motivated by guilt or duty or just in outward expressions, but through a growing realization of who we are and who he is, what we need and what he's done. Which for me means I need Bible. I need Bible. I need input from God's word about who he is and what I'm like. 
Listen to Colossians 2. It tells us that just as we received Christ Jesus, we continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as we were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That's what I want. But it takes being rooted in him, continuing to live in him, thinking on him. I wonder, are you too staid in your thankfulness to Christ, too light in your praise to him that this kind of loud, public, weird praise would never, ever resemble anything in your life? Well, let me ask a third question, Christian. How's your fight against sin going these days? The thing about sin that's different than leprosy is that people with leprosy hate leprosy. People with sin sometimes love sin. We sometimes love it. Isn't that weird? No one with leprosy loves leprosy. I don't have mixed feelings about it. Yet we have mixed feelings about sin. While believing that he has cleansed us, let's now, let's now work to remove blemishes these temporary blemishes of sin. Yes, in the end, he'll cleanse us white as snow. But may God give us the grace now to see cankerous sores for just what they are, to see sin as just as ugly as he sees it, to see sin as potentially as deadly and deceptive as it is, but also to see Christ is as mighty to save and willing to save as he is. Pray with me for that help. Lord, we thank you for your commitment to us, your power to save. And we pray for help. We pray for help to respond as we should. We pray, Lord, that we would respond in greater thanks. None of us in here can feel good about the amount of thanks we give, the amount of praise we show you but we pray lord that you would do a mighty work in our hearts to just like i prayed earlier to move us from one degree of glory to another let us see more thanks let us see more praise and let it not be fake let it not be worked up let it be the response of our hearts to sing loudly to sing of our cleansing and our redemption like only a like only a cleansed samaritan leper could do Lord, we thank you that you have paid it all. We pray in Jesus' great saving name. Amen.